Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. I got a chance this week to speak to um, Claire Lehman, uh, the, the journalist, founder of Colette magazine, columnist at the Australian newspaper. Uh, we were both at the ARC conference and got the opportunity to speak in one of their little uh, podcasting booths. Uh, we covered Me Too, age gap discourse, blank slatism when it comes to sex differences, uh, the gender pay gap, whether or not mothers should get tax breaks uh, or payments from the government, what the right age to get married is, and also what's been going on with academia, particularly following the 7th of October attacks and whether academia can can ever be um, salvaged. This is a free one this week. It's going to be available also on the ARC podcast channel, so there's, there's, there's nothing behind the paywall. But for all of the, the other back catalogue, the bonus episodes, the chat community, all of that, you can go to louiseperry.substack.com. Enjoy. I've always suspected that a big part of the reason why why Me Too happened and why all mm. the kind of sexual assault on campus stuff happened. I actually wrote a piece for Quillette very early on mm. in my writing career, partly about campus sexual assault. You, you wouldn't remember because it was so long ago. Like the great irony of the campus sexual assault stuff is that actually women who go to university are slightly less at risk than women who don't. Yeah. Which is just for demographic reasons. It's yeah. just because of being generally yeah. uh, wealthier and certain, from certain ethnic minorities and so on. But my suspicion is that a lot of what's going on with that stuff, it's not necessarily to do with like criminal behavior on campus. It's to do with bad sexual behavior on campus. Or unethical behavior. Exactly. Yeah. And these young women don't really have any way of articulating their complaint. Yeah. Except in kind of legal terms. Legalistic terms. Yeah. And uh, consent has been inflated as a concept to cover all aspects of sexual activity Whereas in the past, we used to use moralistic language. Right. So if you were a predator, well, I mean, a predator sounds like a criminal, but you could have been a cad. Yeah. Or uh, even back in my day, it was, um, you could be a player. Right. Yeah. Which is the same as being a cad. But yeah, I think, I think you're right that a lot of, there's a lot of frustration and resentment and one of the only socially acceptable channels for women to vent that frustration is through um, complaints about sexual assault, but perhaps the resentment isn't really about sexual assault. Perhaps it's about exploitative sexual behaviour on behalf of men. Mm. Yeah, and there isn't because I, I think a lot of these young women who have raised on the sort of sex positive uh, ideology, yeah, they don't they do not feel comfortable using that moralistic language. Right, yeah. They're not going to use a word like chivalry. Yeah, yeah. Or, or talk about being gentlemanly or any of that. Like that's so possibly old-fashioned they just wouldn't say it. Do you think you can be sex positive whilst also being moralistic at the same time? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, right, that it does often end up being like age gap discourse. Yeah. Right, where people, where sex positive people will be very, very condemnatory of age gaps of more than what five years so who who are we talking about when we talk about sex positive people so i'm thinking of camille palia oh uh, well i don't know no i don't know and i don't actually have kind of no right she's i think she's her own her own she's her own category i'm thinking more of sort of mainstream campus kind of like pro bdsm pro sex work whatever okay but also often actually quite i think sometimes quite weirdly moralistic in other ways yeah which is unexpected yeah like 
yeah, and you know, with consent, anything goes. You know, sex work should be completely legalized, yada yada. Yeah. But Leonardo DiCaprio is like must be absolutely condemned right. for having yeah. relationships with women in their twenties. Yeah. So it's it's sex positive, but not male sexuality positive. Because if you if you accept the reality of male sexuality, you are going to accept that that men prefer young, fertile mates and mm. they prefer variety and that's just part of it. So it's a it's yeah, a yeah, asymmetrical sex positivity. Uh, well, I think they would say no because they don't think that there's such a thing as innate male and female sexuality. Yeah, well, they're wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I guess they would say it's not that there's yes, it's not that they're opposed to male sexuality per se. Although they probably actually quite, I think they think it was quite cool if there was an older woman who was behaving like Leonardo DiCaprio does with younger yeah. men. Yeah. So the asymmetry yeah. persists. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like your thesis that, uh, well, I mean, you, you can sum up your thesis better, you know, that the sexual revolution has been uh, a mis- mistake. I, I wouldn't go so far as agreeing that I think the sexual revolution has been a mistake, but what I have uh, been opposed to is this denial of human nature, yeah. this blank slatism, this yeah. denial that men and women have different natures, particularly when it comes to sexual behaviour. And I think that... Um, if we continue to deny human behavior and have these, the the lack of norms, the breakdown of norms, that leads to misery. However, if women and young men are, have the knowledge, uh, to be able to understand their own, uh, psychology and, and behavior, then they're more equipped to handle this sort of, um, wild west environment. Mm. I've always, yeah, I've always thought that, um, and of course, it was James Damer, wasn't it? Early on, that was a big sort of a big event for for Quillette yeah, in terms right. of popularizing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've always thought that there's feminists have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to acknowledging the differences between men and women. Yeah, that it oughtn't to be. You would think to hear some blank slaters speak that there would be something incredibly humiliating and mm. and 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 awful about acknowledging say differences in male and female sexuality as being mm. rooted in biology yeah so i think the, the the denial of human nature and the denial of sex differences was motivated by this you know this push to um minimize any differences so that women could be equal with men in the economic sphere um but i would say that that's been achieved wouldn't you would you agree well, there's still the gender pay. I mean, the gender pay gap has two. I think has two causes. One is just having a lot of male CEOs at the very tippy top kind of drags the male average up. Yeah. I mean, I think that is for biological. We can get we can yeah, get onto yeah, that. Why yeah. there's so many male CEOs? But mostly the reason that women earn less than men and do and generally are less likely to be in most senior positions is because women have kids. Yeah. And because there's a fundamental clash between work and family life for women that doesn't just just doesn't exist for men in the same way. Yeah. And it's, that's not going anywhere, at it? It's not a gender pay gap. It's a, a mothers versus everyone else pay Precisely, gap. yeah. Because I think young women, women between the ages of 20 and 30, out-earn mm. men of the same age today. And I'm pretty sure they're getting uh, higher degrees or graduating with degrees at a higher rate than men are now. Yeah. And actually I think that a lot of some of the psychological differences between men and women in our current economic setup 
actually put women at more of an advantage. Like women are a little bit more conscientious than men are, for instance. Yeah. And women are a little bit more agreeable than men are. And yeah. actually, if you're working in service, the service sector, that's actually really advantageous. Yeah, I think I, I think in some in many uh, industries and settings, female typical traits are probably advantageous. Yeah. However, in the business world, male typical traits because it's are the competitive more, thing. Yeah, and yeah. and there's an, a level of aggression that's required. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know um, just from running my own business that uh, you do people do try and take advantage of you. People mm. do try and rip you off, and I'm more I'm a more disagreeable woman. I'm, more disagreeable than the average woman mm. but even then not quite disagreeable I'm not enough. quite disagreeable <laughs> enough yeah and I can see that disagreeableness is uh an advantageous trait in the business world and so of no it's this it's no wonder that aggressive males um dominate that particular industry or yeah. those very competitive industries and I think it's probably a similar situation in the legal profession uh yeah but that comes back to you know, recognizing that we're not all cut from the same cloth, we have different personalities, we have different temperaments, and recognizing that, um, you know, in an ideal world where we have choice, we match up our preferences to our personality traits and our skills and our strengths. Yeah, yeah. and therefore that you should expect to see men and women predominating in certain sectors, and that's not necessarily fine. a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I always think it's funny, you know, you read these studies about the more equal a society is, the more likely you are to see differences in in profession choice. But I always think it's a slightly odd, like when you look at the countries you're comparing, I mean, to the most equal countries are obviously, say, the Nordic countries and so on. But then, I don't know, like a women in, a men and women in Kenya, like really getting absolute choice over what profession, I don't know, it just, it seems like the, the design of those studies, I've always found slightly dubious. I think though that it seems clear to me that there are important average differences between men and women. Yeah, yeah. And we do see them playing out in the real world. Yeah. And that does mean that women earn a little bit less than men do on average. Yeah, well, and that that's so... And we kind of just have to... What do we do about that, I guess, is my question. The, the earnings <laughs> issue? Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I think that accepting that women accepting that mothers are paid less because they are working in the home yeah i think that uh i think that societies need to come to terms with that and yeah. recognize it in an economic uh capacity mm-hmm. and i i don't know how that would work but i really like hungary's idea of uh, giving me rich- loads of money well, yeah. well, reducing tax <laughs> yeah, no, for I'm, women I'm, who yeah. have children. Yeah, completely. Uh, you know, for selfish reasons, I would love yeah. not to pay income tax. Yeah. But, you know, society, like I'm raising two young children who are going to become workers yeah. when they're older. They are going to pay tax. And maybe I need to be recognized for that work mm. that I'm doing for society. I mean, it's a public good. To have children is a public, you're doing a public service. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's a long-standing second-wave feminist talking point, whether we should have wages for housework. Right. But I, but the, the way that that's normally being conceptualised is through state handouts of one form right. or another. So either yeah. you get some sort of UBI or maybe you have free universal daycare or something like okay. that. I've always felt my sort of conservative instinct is that um, it's my money, not the state's, and so they shouldn't be, we should just reduce tax instead. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's just different ways of, yeah. it's, it's actually quite a similar approach. 
I guess the counter argument would be that what about the women who don't go back into the workforce after having children? I mean, mm-hmm. shouldn't they be compensated as well? Mm. And I don't know how. I don't know how you would do that. But certainly, I think it. I think it would go a long way to recognize the work that women do. And say, say a woman takes five years out of the workforce to raise some young children goes back into the workforce. I mean, she's going to be behind mm. in her career anyway. There's mm. going to be this gender pay gap. If she is taxed less, I think that would be fair. For the rest of her life? Yeah. Yeah. Like I think in Hungary it's you have to have four and then you never pay income tax again. Yeah, Something I think that's like a great that. idea. And they also give you a big loan towards buying a home. Really? Yeah, which I think... Um, um, I might be making this up, but it, it's something, it's the equivalent of like £300,000 in the UK. And if you have three kids, you don't have to pay it back. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's like serious money. Yeah. I think I think the problem is though that, you know, governments have tried all sorts of interventions to boost the fertility rate and they've found that really nothing works. Yeah. Hungary's boosted it a little bit, but it's still not a replacement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it is just really hard. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I mean, so much of it is just, the whole way that we imagine career paths, mm. thinking professional, people with professional jobs, it's suited to the male life cycle, not the female life cycle. Exactly, exactly. I mean, one thing I guess would be to have women, well, I guess there are two things you can do. One is just magically extend the fertility window. I say magically, technologically extend yeah. the fertility window, which is another way of um, describing magic, or or shift it all back. I mean, women live longer than men. Yeah. So if we say delayed going to university for like five years and had kids in early 20s and then just worked five years longer Mm. it would all come out in the wash yeah yeah I'm not sure about marriage and having kids in the early 20s you think well uh I think that the the statistics around divorce show that the marriages that are most stable are late 20s marriages Mm. So you've got young people who have had a little bit of experience in the mating market. Um, I mean, that's a horrible term, isn't it, mating market? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. they've had some experience uh, and so they know themselves, they're happy with their partner and they settle down in their late 20s and then they, they commit to this long-term project. I think you find higher rates of divorce for people who get married very early mm. because they get to their... 30s or 40s and they feel like they haven't uh, don't have a big sample size and they (laughs) see I'm kind of skeptical of this idea that we need to like you know you need to have a like a moderate body count before you can get married it's a very do you have you seen Sex and City Uh, I've seen some episodes yes there's there's a there's a sort of a crucial bit where Charlotte who's the sort of conservative one um gets married to a man that she hasn't had sex with Right. For various reasons. And then yeah. it turns out that he, he he's impotent, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a terrible warning of this is why you absolutely mustn't yeah. do the trad thing. Yeah. And I'm sure there are examples of that happening. But it, it but it doesn't seem obvious to me. Yeah. That- yeah, I would, I would take a more middle road mm. in that I don't think a person needs to have a very large sample size mm-hmm. of partners however I do think sexual compatibility is very important yeah and I think so annulments are for yeah yeah so there's a reddit forum called r forward slash dead bedrooms yeah and it is horrifying <laughs> 
there are these stories of these poor women. Mm. There's a lot of men, but there's a lot of women who say, my husband is not attracted to me. He's addicted to pornography. He yeah. will not have sex with me. I haven't been touched in months or years. Mm. And there's this this there's so much misery out there due to a lack of sexual compatibility. I think at least knowing that the person you're with is attracted to you is going to um, satisfy you um, and not completely neglect you. I think it's mm. the, the neglect, like people suffer from sexual neglect in these long-term relationships and then I don't know how to solve the problem. But Yeah, I mean, just late 20s maybe... But then do you not think as well that to some extent our young people nowadays, they, their, their adolescence is just incredibly extended? Yeah. And maybe they, maybe people would be more, the idea that someone aged 23 or whatever, I should say I got engaged when I was 24, which was considered so young yeah. in my circle of friends. Like a 24-year-old now is probably psychologically quite different from a 24-year-old 100 years ago or 500 oh, years definitely, ago. definitely, definitely. Um, just in terms of the expectations that we have of children and teenagers doing responsible things yeah definitely yeah and 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 even today there's going to be a lot of variation you're going to have uh 24 year olds who are much more mature than other 24 year olds uh so obviously we can't there's not a one-size-fits-all sort of solution and we have to recognize variation but yeah i don't know i i would hesitate to encourage i would hesitate to encourage people to get married in their early 20s but then women especially need to be thinking about it. Yeah. They need, it needs to, I mean, for me, marriage and children was at the top of my mind in my 20s and I ended up getting married and having children and now I've got a career so it's all worked out. Mm. And I have, I do have friends, so I'm 38 now, I do have friends who uh, did not have the, those priorities at the top of mind and have missed out mm. and are now absolutely devastated and terrified of the future because they do not have a long-term partner they do not have children yet Mm. Um, and so it does need to be a priority it it needs to at least be uh you need to at least be thinking about it in your early 20s onwards there was a big um brouhaha in the uk a couple of years ago when i don't know what her title was the head of a a, a women's college in cambridge gave a speech to the girls saying basically this that you need to be thinking about it now and that actually your biological window is is shorter than you think or whatever and it caused so much controversy in the media um and the most common response that i saw was from from um feminists who didn't like what she said was yeah we know that really yeah i don't don't think people do no i don't think people do either i'm i'm surprised i even today i come across people who didn't not know how quickly the fertility window closes and that it starts to decline after the age of 32 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think I knew that when I was like 21 or whatever, so mm. the target audience for her um, speech. But, I mean, it's just one of these sort of terrible unfairnesses and asymmetries that yeah, you can't, much as you might want to, you can't actually wish away. Women. Yeah, and and fighting it is a recipe for anxiety, bitterness. You know, we we have to accept the hand we've been dealt, and if we've been born female, then we just do not have the same length of time. We have to be decisive, make a decision. Uh, can't wait for for Mister Perfect. 
Um, and that and that's the thing. I think um, now that I'm older, I, uh, you know, I think I think when people older married people can explain to younger people is that uh, long term relationships are. Uh, you know, they're this thing that you build together. You don't have mm. to find the perfect person. You build these beautiful relationships together, you know, and, and bring children into them. And we know now from studies that the happiest people are married people mm. because they get all of the benefits from these long-term relationships with that deep intimacy and trust. Yeah, counterintuitively. Married people also have more sex. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, but, well, I mean, but you wouldn't think it. The joke is that bed death is inevitable. Well, that, I mean, if you look at the statistics of uh, sexual activity in young people, young people today, so people in their late teens and early 20s, are having less sex than they did back in the 80s and the 70s mm. and 60s. And you would, uh, I mean, one would say that our sexual norms are less restrictive mm where people are having less sex, so people have more sex when they're in monogamous relationships. Mm. So, you know, so monogamy is pro, pro is sex positive. <laughs> yes, yes. The, uh, <laughs> the sex negative case for sex positivity. My assumption about what's going on there, although I can't really prove it, is it's because these, these, these kids are possibly having, say, more one-night stands, but because they're having fewer monogamous relationships, yeah. they're actually having less sex overall. So it's like yeah. simultaneously more casual, but actually less, Yeah, you know. I think, I think only a small percentage of kids or, pe- or people, I shouldn't mm. say kids, that sounds horrible, but I think only a small percentage have what's called high sociosexuality. Yeah. And I think you'd, you'd find it's maybe 5 to 10% of the population who are promiscuous mm. and they're mostly checking each other yeah. yeah and then everyone else is just either in a long-term relationship or celibate mm. but I think you're definitely correct when you're saying that there's a, a few men at the apex who are monopolizing the available women and then you've got this huge chunk of men who are incels because mm. the women all want to go with the apex predator <laughs> Uh, which is not ideal, and then you get the this this you know it can have knock on effects in society where there's instability. If young men aren't, mm. um, if young feel, men feel locked out of the mating market, that's not ideal. It's funny, isn't it? That probably I don't know ten or fifteen years ago, the 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 red pill incel yeah. take was to be found on only the kind of murkiest corners of the internet. Yeah, and now I think it just seems to be obviously true and everyone i mean not the whole not the whole red pill yeah. you know yeah. narrative but basically this idea that there are a lot of men who are, who are really losing out from the current dating marketplace and are made well it's been borne out by the statistics so yeah gene twangy's um book igen mm. uh about the uh, you know how, how phones have disrupted um young oh. adulthood and teenage teenagehood she has graphs in there that show this massive drop in um, sexual activity among young people Mm. and so in her book um, you know there's a lot of emphasis on the phone disrupting normal social activity and um, yeah I I mean kids are socializing less they're taking fewer drugs they're drinking less they're driving less they're having less sex so I mean there's but that goes back to your point about this prolonged adolescence yeah we're just growing up more slowly yeah 
do you have what's your phone policy with your have you decided uh my uh, my eldest is 10 and he does not have a phone uh he does catch the bus to school and he has a paper map oh, really? <laughs> and he has memorized our phone numbers and he can go to the phone booth oh okay okay yeah, yeah. you know you can get these kind of dumb phones for kids as well like yeah what they're called whether they can't do anything evil with them, they can just yeah. phone you, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, which I maybe will do that. I don't know. It's hard though. With um, I honestly think that if the government just sort of treated smartphones like cigarettes mm. and banned them for under sixteens, I think every parent would be delighted. Yeah, and whichever politician implements that will probably be a very popular one yeah because i think it's it's one of the toughest aspects of parenting today Mm. and a lot of parents would just like it to be outsourced yeah yeah i think so because the problem right is it's just a coordination problem because you don't want to be the one who who makes your child a social outcast yeah but you depend on all the other parents being on the same page that's right and whoever's weakest and gives them first kind of yeah. yeah. So I think if the, yeah, I think you're right. If an external agent came in, people would be thrilled. Yeah. And you know, the research is there. I mean, it's not it's not as hard. The evidence is not as uh robust as what you would get out of clinical trials. Obviously, we can't do clinical trials on these issues because they're long-term and mm. there's ethics issues. But um you know, I think the scientific data is strong enough to warrant a ban on under 6 warrant a ban at least for social media apps for under 16s i don't know about phones but at least for social media i so i thought you were a libertarian claire i'm slightly surprised uh, to hear this uh, but not when it comes to no i, I i've never really identified as a oh, libertarian really? i mean per, per, perhaps culturally libertarian mm-hmm. but no i i'm pro-regulation on on addictive substances mm-hmm. and particularly with kids yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, some people argue that it's there's a moral panic around social media and phone use, but you know, I think, uh, I I think it's different from past panics around uh, violent video games or heavy metal music. It's 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 quite clearly. I mean, we as adults know how disruptive. I've been addicted to social media. And I know how disruptive it's been for my in my life mm. and how it's affected my mood and given me anxiety. So I just don't want that for my kids. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just obvious how addictive phones are for yeah. adults um, and not just people. Like boomers are some of the worst. I always yeah. think of being like constantly on their phones. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems obvious that it's going to be yeah, the regulation will come. It's inevitable. Just I so. hope it's it comes before my daughter turns thirteen. Yeah. How do you think? So, how long's Colette been going? So, I've been doing Colette for about eight years. How do you think? When you first started, you were really pretty much on your own in terms of this really taking heterodox positions and being. I thought very brave about about mm. that. It seems like a lot of other people have caught up. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, yeah, uh, the, me- the media landscape has completely changed since uh, since the time I started Colette. So when mm. I started eight years ago, there were hardly, I mean, there were niche little blogs in mm. corners of the internet, but you just didn't have alternative publications where writers knew they would get an, a pretty large audience and they would get paid for their work. There mm. just was a lack of choice for writers 
since I started and since Substack has um, blown open the media ecosystem, so much diversity and choice. And now we we have the problem of being overly saturated mm. with content. There's too much content. We can't keep up with it all. It's a different problem to the one that we had before. So I think the media landscape has changed for the better. I think what has the industry that hasn't changed is academia. Yeah. Because there's been no disruptive disruptor. So you can say that Substack or the subscription media business model has disrupted the media industry. There's been no similar event that has happened to academia. And it's just getting more and more homogenous and insular and uh, deranged in some respects. And we can see that now with this, you know, academics coming out being pro Hamas mm. uh, without any repercussions. Like that, you, ju- you just don't get that in, in the real world where you have sectors that have to be profitable and, you know, have to please customers. You just don't get that. Yeah. I mean, well, the only exception to that, though, lately has been some funders withdrawing money from universities that haven't yeah. been disciplining their students for being pro-Hamas, which is interesting. They're finally doing it. Well, exactly. That's what was taking you so Exactly. That's what I thought as well. But it does seem as if quite a few people have just in the last, since the October 7th attacks, have have quite a few people on the sort of centre-left. Finally realise that there's a problem. Yeah. Mm. It's been, I think it's been a bit of a shock. It's been a shock to me Mm. and I've been covering the uh, pathologies within academia on Colette for eight years mm. and it was a shock to me mm. to see these sort of celebrations. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's it's been quite an event. I was listening to the radio this morning, like call-in radio in London, and uh, and and obviously, you know, the discussion was, was um, Gaza and I did not find myself reassured at all by the callers calling in at you- all. Not reassured. No, because you you look at these big protests in not just in London but in Australia and you know basically all Western countries that have large mm. um, Muslim diasporas, and you think, oh well, hopefully not everyone there is you know actually pro Hamas. <laughs> hopefully there's a sort of healthy a healthy majority who really do just think that care about the welfare of Palestinian people. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of unknowable, right? And yeah, I got to say, listening to people calling in this morning, I was like, "Wow, this is." Yeah, there's this- a le- there's a level of antipathy to that is directed towards Israel that I I find quite shocking, and that I did not really know existed uh, prior prior to October the seventh. It's yeah. all coming out now. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, um, but I I was not aware that there was this level of hatred, basically. I sort of was, but only because I went to SARS, which is one of the most, um, was sometimes called the School of Anti-Semitism. Right. The University of London. That was my, it was a very, very politically formative for me, actually, just mm. because it was such a crazy left-wing university that I think it was like an, I had an accelerated process of. Coming conservative. Right. It might have taken me an extra decade or something if I hadn't been to SARS. Um, so I wasn't that surprised by this. I suppose I was a bit surprised by by how, by how shocked people in the center have been okay because it seemed obvious to me but then maybe i've been i i've been oblivious deep in this yeah i've been oblivious to the israel palestine issue right so i've um but quillette has published quite a lot of stuff on um 
on Islamism yeah. and on yeah yeah but it hasn't Israel the Israel Palestine issue has not been a, a big issue in Australia okay uh, hasn't you know there's always been pipe bipartisan support for Israel. Yeah. Is it now becoming a big issue, but it's becoming a big issue everywhere. Yeah. And so I just have it has not occupied my attention at all until very recently. I mean, it shouldn't like we shouldn't be as preoccupied as we are with the conflict thousands of miles away. Yeah. Like that yeah. that that's And it's not the only conflict that's happening well, in no, the world. Well, no, exactly. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this is the my um friend of mine went on uh, March um in support of Uyghurs in London um, last year or something. And he said there were 40 people who went, yeah. four zero people yeah. who went. And now you have hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So, yes, no, clearly there is an enormous inconsistency. And I think, I mean, going back to the social media thing, I think a lot of it has to do with we've never had these images beamed to us exactly as rapidly and as graphically as we have yeah. in this conflict. It's extremely emotionally arousing. Yeah. And I can imagine, so I, I saw the images that were coming out from October the 7th mm. as, as it was happening. I saw mm. those images on Twitter. But if I didn't see those images and I was only exposed to images coming out of Gaza, yeah, I think, exactly. you know, I can imagine having a different perception of the conflict. Yeah. And so it ju- it's, it's quite scary to think that, our you know our, our behavior or or fundamental perceptions can be so determined just from what algorithms are feeding us at a particular point in time on a particular platform yeah and i think that some people have been looking at how tiktok is showing kids young people all of this anti-israel pro-palestinian content and now you've got surveys coming out in the United States saying that a majority of Gen Z or a majority of people under 25 are basically pro-Hamas or or endorse the statement that, you know, the Israelis, the massacre against the Israelis um, was justified. Yeah. yeah. Which is horrific, absolutely horrific. I saw Helen Andrews on Twitter the other day talking about this, um, the American journalist talking about this uh these figures on campus mm. attitudes and she was saying i'm i can't remember exactly her phrasing she was saying, i'm going to go to my grave insisting this isn't about ideology this is about demographics yeah it's actually that on it's actually just that these younger age groups particularly in the universities are less white really and that just correlates very closely with attitudes towards israel really yeah. yeah i mean that's that's a valid hypothesis i i, I wouldn't know i'd have to look at the data but yeah perhaps i think for a lot of people the way that it codes the conflict they're not really interested in thousands of years of like territorial yeah and and the bible or anything like that you know the way that it codes is israel codes as white and the gazans code as oppressed non-whites yeah and that's how that's what you hitch your wagon to in sort of domestic culture warring yeah and this this um manichean framework of the oppressor and oppressed i mean it's it's hard for me to understand how that can take over people's minds Mm. to such an extent that they can justify the killing of children Mm. but apparently apparently it can yeah and i think probably sort of did all along i mean i guess one of the reasons why 
and this applies as much to me as anyone else, I it takes a bit of a leap of faith for me to 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 really believe that people mean what they say when they're talking about being motivated by religious war, you know, like mm. really believing in jihad or whatever. As someone raised as a secular Western you know, liberal, like yes, conservative, but still basically liberal in my yeah. attitude towards governance, I sort of think, oh, surely you don't mean it. Yeah. But actually, no, I think people completely mean it. And maybe one of the reasons why a lot of people have been slow to catch up is that um, is that typical minded bias, you know, you assume that other people basically think about things in the same way that you do. Yeah, there's an there's a almost a lack of imagination yeah. in um, understanding that different cultures have different moral codes, and not everything is is motivated by, you know, we Westerners think that there has to be a material reason for everything. There's mm. an economic purpose or some utilitarian purpose, and um, we can be quite blind to the ideologies. Mm. Um, of cultures that are unfamiliar to us. Mm. But then, you know, Islamism, at least in the, the Islamism that is practiced by Hamas, it is actually influenced by European ideas, uh, Nazism. Mm. So uh, there is there is a link to Western, well, you, you wouldn't say Western culture, but there is a link to, to European yeah. thought. Yeah. If we can understand Nazi ideology, you would think that we'd be able to understand Islamism. Yes. I think in some ways, I mean, this. The, I know this will sound potentially overblown, but I think in some ways Hamas is actually worse than the Nazis in the sense that the Nazis did at least make some effort to hide their atrocities, whereas Hamas, as we're saying, social media have done the opposite. Yeah. Have used it as propaganda. Yeah, and if they had the tools at their disposal, they would. Yes, yeah, that's they the thing. They would do exactly the same. Yeah. Yes, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on the academia. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, I don't think this is going to just last indefinitely in academia, this this craziness, you know, not just from people withdrawing funding from the craziest universities, but I don't know. I, I feel like surely at some point there'll be a, a tipping point will be reached and well we can see that enrollments in humanities disciplines are just going down every year they're just yeah. dropping precipitously and so i think these disciplines are just you know digging their own grave mm. really people are not enrolling in in them they've lost prestige uh Maybe we'll see more universities sort of separate out the sciences, mm. separate out the STEM faculty from the junk. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, they've already marginalised themselves so much, these humanities disciplines. They, they'll just keep marginalising themselves. And maybe we just need, you know, maybe there needs to be a, a different allocation of funding. Like, you know, you can get student loans to, to study courses where, there's going to be a likely job at the end of it mm. in a job that is needed by society and maybe these other courses, you know, you can go and do your critical sexuality studies if you want but don't expect to get a student loan for it from the government or something like that. Maybe we need to look at, you know, maybe that needs to be a discussion. I have a friend in who works in policy who always jokes, although he's not really joking, that what we should do is nationalise universities because then as soon as the government actually looked at their costs and output they'd be like what <laughs> it well, would be the left-wing route yeah, to- <laughs> yeah. 
undermine the university system. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't want them gone, right? But it's just, I think it's just folly to think that you should be sending half of people to university, one thing. Yeah, that's right. There's too many kids, there's too many people going to university and they're, and they're also there for too long. Yeah. I think they... Extended could, adolescence, yeah. Yeah. Why do you need to spend three or four years drinking and not doing very much work? Yeah. <laughs> I sound so old, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... And it seems as if policy could definitely change to to discourage that. I mean, apart from anything else for fertility, it's ridiculous to spend, yeah, to, to delay going into the workforce and delay buying property and delay all the things that you need to do in order to start a family. Yeah. You and, get loads of debt. And one of the, uh, the, the impacts on women is this education inflation. So we used to be if when fewer people went to university you could go and get your bachelor's degree and take it to an employer and say hey look i'm conscientious and smart i've got this degree yeah now everyone can get a degree and the grades don't really mean anything so you have to go and get a master's or a phd yeah and so adulthood starts later and then you've wasted your your key fertile years on education you know the people who have the lowest fertility in terms of like the combination of education and income are people who are high education, low income. Oh, right. So okay. like academics, for instance, yeah. right? Whereas people who are low education, high income, like football players, Trainings. they have loads of kids. <laughs> <laughs> like they often have four or five kids or whatever yeah, and marry their right. high school sweetheart. Low it, so high education, low income. Yeah. Yeah, right. That shreds fertility. Yeah, yeah. And I, is there a relationship between, you know, masters and PhD degrees and fertility in women? So I think it's basically just the more education you have, the lower your fertility yeah. is. It possibly plateaus between masters and PhD. It might, if memory serves, but um, yeah, which is why I've always thought, you know, you don't. This is why feminism has to get ahead of this because yeah. any authoritarian government in the future that's really concerned about fertility is going to look at that and say, oh well, get women out of education then they go oh god yeah yeah so which is why i think you need to be thinking in like pro-woman terms about how to yeah well how i to think be pronatal. yeah i think there's a feminist case for looking at tax rates yeah for for mothers differently and and in court and recognizing the the unpaid work that women do through some kind of tax incentives i think there's definitely a feminist case for that yeah and a and a and a very personal case, I would love to pay less tax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe suggesting some, something like that would be controversial. Maybe there would be pushback against it. You know, it's unfair on men or it's unfair on women who don't have kids. Mm. I don't know. But I think it would be considered, I think the main pushback would be women who don't, who either can't or don't want to have kids. Yeah. Um, but look, if the point of it is paying for the kid you know it's not like it's not like a special treat that you're getting yeah yeah like it's just expensive and time consuming yeah and it's just some kind of recognized just some kind of compensation it's not yeah 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 it's really nice chatting louise yeah and you yeah thank you so much no worries (laughs) you too